The conflict in Syria is on the verge of a dangerous escalation. The exact number of Bangladeshi citizens who drowned in the Mediterranean is not known. Mr Netanyahu says he will apply Israeli sovereignty to Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Hello and welcome to Dispatch, a weekly podcast from Middle East Eye's Global Newsroom. Today is the 15th of May. On the show, we are taking a look at how migrants from Bangladesh became one of the biggest groups attempting to cross the sea into Europe from Libya. We look at investigations into British foreign intelligence and how they've uncovered a series of propaganda campaigns carried out amid the Syrian civil war. And marking the day of Nakba, we look at the history of Israeli land policies stripping Palestinians of their homes. My name is Mohammed Hassan. I'm joined today by MEA journalist Kamal Ahmed, senior investigative reporter Ian Cobain, and Israel-Palestine director for Human Rights Watch, Omar Shakir. Welcome to you all. First up today, they call it The Game, the dangerous and risky journey migrants are taking all the way from their villages and towns in Bangladesh to war-ravaged Libya and into the uncompromising waters of the Mediterranean Sea, all with the hopes of reaching the shores of Europe and a new beginning. Kamal Ahmed, you've been speaking to some of the people that have attempted these journeys. What are they telling you? Well, basically, it's a symptom of Bangladesh's history, its its trajectory since independence and before. Um, the people I spoke to were from my dad's village. It's including one of my cousins. Um, it's a place where before independence, my father, before independence of Bangladesh in 1971, came to the UK. And throughout the almost more than 50 years now, there have been people going, first trying to come to the UK, and then as immigration laws tightened up, they went more to the Gulf, to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia also kind of changed the arrangements occasionally ahead of Bangladesh, same with all of the Gulf. People started going to Malaysia by boat, and those boats, uh, journeys got cracked down on upon and so th- this kind of Libya became the latest step of this pursuit of opportunity in Bangladesh they're aiming to go to Europe they can't go to f- go there through any kind of legal route they can't even get a tourist visa so Libya emerged as a, a way to get to Europe um, it- it's a symptom of a lack of opportunity in Bangladesh what you have is a kind of frustrated youth in the the countryside who don't always want to go to Dhaka, which grows by half a million every year, where they know unless they work as a day labourer, they're not going to be able to get by. So what you have is even Facebook groups advertising this thing called the game. Everyone knows about it. And I was surprised. Like I said, I, I went to the village and we asked about like, does anyone know who's gone to Libya? And they just started calling it the game. Um, it's morbid, but you actually can guess what the game means. The the actual gamble of like getting across the Mediterranean Sea. I was going to ask you about that name because it is it is very morbid and and, and it's almost kind of comical uh, euphemism for what is you know quite a treacherous and terrifying journey for a lot of people. Is it also a sign that it's kind of becoming more of an industry now? Yeah, it, it's a symptom of what's been going on. It's a symptom of this idea of everywhere in the country, there are these people called Dalals who are 
somewhere between traffickers and middlemen and something also very different and very unique to Bangladesh. They, they, they seem like some kind of shady character, but actually often they're your cousin or uncle or like an in-law or, or kind of you're often related to them somehow. Everyone knows them. And it's why when you go around in Bangladesh and ask for like, can you meet a Dalal? It's actually not that easy because people will pretend they don't know one, but they do. It's just that they actually have a connection to them. So how does it work then? How does it work go from you, you seeing a post on Facebook that somebody shares to you getting into a boat from the shores of Libya heading towards Italy? How does that process work? If you go on the Facebook pages, you can see how in the comments there's people saying like, when's the next game date? Um, so they're just messaging the, the admin. The more popular option is the traditional one of the Dalals who is like, Either someone who is advertising to people, we have this group going on this or that date, or you quite often have just a young person who is always looking for an opportunity, who knows that if I go to this or that person, they're going to help, they're going to be able to set me up with a way to go. What happens is they go to Dhaka, they get a flight to somewhere like, uh, Turkey or, or or Lebanon or Tunisia, and from Tunisia you go in by land. And then what happens once you get there? What what from the people that you've spoken to? What do they find waiting for them once they reach Libya? Once they reach you know that that doorway into the promised land of Europe? They stay first in an accommodation, one that is set up by the Dalal. It's still not great. It's still sleeping on the floor. A few of them in the room, other ones was like tens of people sharing a room. Your food is provided, but you don't know when it's going to come sometimes. Like you might miss one or two days. When your turn comes, you get taken to what they call the game house. It's maybe outside of a city. It's, it's near the coast. Again, sleeping on floors, it's dark, it's crowded. They're definitely not fed much now. The one thing they said is they don't feed you because they don't want you one to fight back and they want you to be lighter when the time comes to go you're suddenly just taken out and this is armed men this is like militias who are taking you out taking you to the coast they tell you you're going to go on a kind of a fishing trawler which is more secure instead you're given a fishing boat uh or like as we've all seen rubber rubber dinghies one of the migrants or refugees is given a compass and told go this way if you see a boat call for help um and that's it um some of them get across a lot of them drown and some of them get stranded the one of the people i spoke to was stranded for 16 hours a boat came past and said it can't help they just had to wait um and eventually what happened was the libyan uh, militias who are known as the coast guard they they intercepted them, brought them back to Libya and put them in a detention center. It it's sometimes with a lot of people it takes a lot. They just they're so fixated and they've accepted the risks, they've come that far. They hear from the people who did make it. They those and those people don't tell them much about the risks. They don't tell them much about what happened on the sea, about what happened in the so called game house. They tell them about how good it is in Italy or beyond. And those kind of ideas of opportunity and prosperity and like building a life and something more than kind of a very limited rural existence their minds feed on that 
and people are kind, get kind of obsessed. They, they want to get there somehow. And I don't think everyone understands the risks until they go through it themselves. What began as a struggle for freedom from dictatorship nine years ago, the conflict in Syria has quickly descended into a proxy war for regional and global powers, all with vested interests in who comes out on top and with little transparency in how they enact their respective strategies on the ground. But apart from the key players, Iran, Turkey, Russia, many Western governments have also quietly played their own roles, sometimes with little regard to the rule of law. Middle East Eye's senior investigative reporter Ian Cobain has been digging tenaciously into the secrets of the UK's foreign intelligence programs, and he's found some pretty wild things. Ian, thank you for joining us today. What has the British government been up to in Syria? Well, the British government has been um, very enthusiastically engaged in propaganda operations in Syria. Um, they started in a small way in 2012, and then um, after the UK Parliament twice voted in August uh, 2013 to advise against British military um, uh, operations in Syria. The, the British government very enthusiastically began engaging in, in, in or, or increased their propaganda operations in the country. Initially, it was the Ministry of Defence, the UK Ministry of Defence, that was running these operations. And then um, somewhere handed over to um, to uh, the Foreign Office, and uh, one was handed over to uh, a government-wide um, conflict fund, which aims to um, deal with conflict around the world that might threaten UK uh, security and UK interests. And um, it wasn't until 2016 that the government decided it would conduct a review of its propaganda operations and see how they were working and whether they were effective, whether they were cost effective. And um, that review, um, uh, the report of which we have seen, Middle East Eye has seen, yeah, really couldn't be more scathing about what, what, what the British government has been uh, doing. Lives were being lost. Uh, that some of the people, some of the individuals delivering the propaganda on the ground didn't realize they were working for British. Government. The British government handed out a series of contracts to communications companies who opened offices very often in Istanbul and Amman. Um, the people running these offices hired members of the Syrian diaspora to work for them, and those Syrians then in turn hired people, uh, Syrians in Syria, to, um, to, to actually deliver um, uh, newspaper articles, newspapers, children's comics, pieces of um, video intended for news media, and obviously a huge amount of uh, social media content. Now, you mentioned a lot of different kind of aspects of, of citizen journalism that, are we talking about programs that were already in place on their own that the British government then decided to fund, or are were there directives or certain things that the British intelligence operatives in, in this instance were looking for and trying to uh, push? Both. Both. So, if somebody had a somebody on Twitter, Syrian on Twitter had a particularly large following, they'd try and access that in some way. Sometimes just buying it, buying the, uh, the buying the account. But sometimes they were um, just creating 
uh, new media. Um, one example is a, is a comic called Hentawi, which was um, aimed at nine to 15 year olds uh, in Syria, and um, which was created by a, a British media, uh, a British run communications company and staffed with, uh, with Syrians. So, so both, they were doing both. And, and this was, we're talking about a comic aimed at children that was being funded by the British government secretly? Yeah, that's right. It was, it was being funded by the British government. It was, being, uh, it was devised by a company that was under contract to the British government. It, it, the comic was a counter-recruitment initiative. It was intended to dissuade young people from being attracted in any way by the Islamic State. That was, that was the intention. The editor of it, a man called Nadi Jeff, um, was shot dead by Islamic State in, in Gaziantep in, in southern Turkey in, uh, in December 2015. Going through these reports and doing the, uh, the stories that you've done, why do you think these revelations are troubling? There's something troubling about uh, an attempt to change the world without understanding it, or in this instance, attempting to shape perceptions of Syria without uh, making any real attempt, making any attempt to understand uh, Syrians. One of the problems with propaganda is that once it's discovered, it undermines confidence in government. One of the things that's worth bearing in mind is that um, British propaganda in the Middle East is nothing new. In the Second World War, the British government set up a series of uh, what purported to be news agencies in Beirut and Cairo and elsewhere, First of all, during the, uh, the Second World War, in order to uh, meet its uh, wartime objectives of defeating Nazi Germany, and then later in, during the Cold War to try and discourage uh, communism uh, in, in the region. And so that, that's, that was going on for uh, years. And in more recent years, um, the British government's been running propaganda operations within the UK aimed at uh, what it calls... Um, affecting attitudinal and behavioural change amongst the UK's Muslim population um, and trying to develop um, and foster what it calls a, a reconciled British Muslim identity, which I think is a fascinating expression, uh, reconciled. Um, so th these things have been going on for some time, but it, as I say, it was after uh, August 2013 when the British government realised it was not going to be able to overtly engage in um, military operations in Syria, that uh, it began enthusiastically involving itself in propaganda operations. Now, one thing that I do have to ask you, Ian, is, of course, if you go online and there is an industry that has evolved over the last few years, especially uh, in Syria and revolving around the Syrian conflict of people trying and attempting to dissuade the vast majority of reporting that has covered this war um, as Western propaganda. A lot of these voices uh, are pro-Assad voices and they claim that much of the stories that we've been told about what's happening on the ground in Syria has been propaganda are these stories proving them right? Are they right in, in what they've believed and what they put forward? In, in my view, no. And the idea that citizen journalism arose spontaneously in Syria, as far as I can see, as a consequence of the failure of, of uh, state-sponsored media to report um, initially protests and then uh, conflict in the country. What the British did was um, saw this was happening spontaneously 
and decided that they would try and co-opt some of it. The British just wanted to shape it. And unfortunately, one of the things that it does by doing this is that allows them, those, those, the, the critics of, of such initiatives to, um, to seize upon that small amount, which is fake, and claim it's all fake. That small amount that is propaganda and claim it's all propaganda. This internal review that I've been talking about makes the point that what the British did was created a constellation of media which resulted in the media activists that they were using and they were employing themselves finding it difficult to know what was real and what was appropriate. Today is May 15, a date remembered by Palestinians around the world as the Nakba, or the catastrophe, marking 72 years since the establishment of the State of Israel, during which more than 700,000 Palestinians were displaced from their homes and towns, many by force. Until today, Israeli law bars these families and their children from returning. However, the policies fueling these displacements continue. Human Rights Watch released a report this week about the history of land policies in Israel, which it says strips Palestinian communities of their land while helping neighboring Jewish communities expand. Omar Shakir is the director for Human Rights Watch, Israel-Palestine office. Omar, what does your report allege of the Israeli government? This report looks at um, Israeli land policies inside the Green Line, inside its own borders, and it compares the situation within Palestinian municipalities inside Israel with that of predominantly Jewish municipalities. For the most part, Palestinians and Israelis inside Israel live in separate communities. So we wanted to understand um, you know, what the situation was for those communities when they wanted to expand, grow, develop, um, are they able to access land for residential growth? So we in particular looked generally at policies within the country, as well as looking at case studies within three of Israel's six administrative districts. Uh, we chose those districts because we had covered the other three previously and, and other research that Human Rights Watch did. Um, and so we looked both generally at those policies as well as specifically, and, and of course we concluded that um, Israeli land policies inside the Green Line hem in Palestinians. They box them into um, uh, densely populated towns while allowing nearby Jewish uh, villages, towns, communities um, to flourish. And, um, you know, this is both generally and with particular um, application to the case studies that we explored. When you went and visited these uh, communities, when you uh, spoke to these people that have been living there for, for generations, for, for decades, what did you find? What did these people tell you about their conditions? Sure. So the story was a bit different uh, in each place. So, you know, let me start with Jisr al-Zarqa. And very much in brief, Jisr al-Zarqa is the only Palestinian municipality um, left on the Israeli Mediterranean coast. And it's basically been completely boxed in. Uh, to its south, you have Kasaria, which is a wealthy, uh, predominantly Jewish um, town that's actually built an earthen mound, uh, a berm, to separate itself from Jisr to the east. Israeli authorities years ago built a highway that uh, basically cuts off Jisr from lands that residents once owned on the other side of the road into the north, uh, the kibbutz of Nagan Makieli built uh, fish ponds uh, that actually, you know, kind of come all the way down, touching on just uh, as a territory. So it's fully boxed in and not able to expand. So we heard stories of very dense, um, you know, uh, areas, crowded, run down, inability to expand uh, and to grow. 
Um, in another area, we went to Qalansawa, which is in the Muthallath, in the Triangle. Um, we heard a different story where they actually have a decent amount of land, about 8,000 dunams. I mean, much smaller than what it was years ago due to um, most of the land was confiscated over the years. But even within this 8,000, there's probably enough land there for residents. But nearly half the land um, has been zoned for agricultural use. Um, where you can't build homes on it. And the Israeli government, in fact, has actually, um, in this area, issued demolition orders for homes that were built uh, in this area. So there are other areas that have been marked as green areas or where the state has built electricity lines, roads, and where building is not allowed. So actually, the majority um, of the land, uh, in essence, is, are areas where people can't build. And in our last case study, we looked at the village of Ein Mahel, which is fully surrounded um, by the predominantly Jewish city of Nazareth elite, renamed recently Nof Hagadir, uh, which was built basically, um, according to Israeli officials at the time, to swallow up um, the Palestinian villages around it. And it's literally an island amid a sea of this uh, like predominantly Jewish city. And again, in Ayman, the majority of the land has been designated either as agricultural land or as a green area, and residents can't build. So you see this sort of densely packed community, you know, just overlooking a very wealthy um, industrial area where, um, you know, folks are doing much better. So the story we heard everywhere was that these sorts of land restrictions underlie um, the kind of challenges Palestinians face um, every day, including um, the socioeconomic situation, including even problems of crime, etc. A lot of it stems from these dynamics in the communities. And the last thing I'll say on your question is we also went to the Jewish uh, towns uh, and communities around, and we spoke uh, to an, an, uh, Kibbutz Megan Makeli, board in Joseph Azara, Sha'ar Afraim. Uh, we talked to the regional council, that's the one that borders Kalensawa, and we talked to officials in Nazareth Elite to understand their perspective on land issues, their own experiences, and that was the basis for the comparison among other research we looked at. We also I received information from the Israeli government. We looked at aerial photographs. We looked at land records. So it was a quite comprehensive um, uh, uh, look. And how, where does this begin? How does this all work within Israel from a legislative uh, point of view? So there's several different uh, mechanics. I think the first thing to understand is that, um, you know, much of these Jewish towns were built on the ruins of Palestinian villages uh, demolished in 1948 in the events surrounding Israel's establishment. According to one estimate that, you know, we cite in the report, 350 of 370 um, communities built between 1948 and 1953 were built, uh, you know, on land uh, from uh, demolished Palestinian uh, villages. 93% of the land across Israel is state land. Um, and the body that allocates that state land is actually nearly half the seats are made up by the Jewish National Fund, whose mandate is specifically to build homes and develop areas for Jews and not for any other segment of the community. So you start with the state land, but then when you actually look at um, the land available, you see that although Palestinians of Israel make up 21% of the population, only about 3% um, of the land falls within the jurisdiction of those Palestinian municipalities where most of the population lives. So, you know, uh, state land, right, which is largely being given to Jewish communities. Then you have this small bucket um, where, where Palestinian municipalities lie. Most of the land, or at least half of it, is privately owned land. So even if you wanted to expand, you're talking about area where people already have um, ownership claims. And then, so you get, so you start with the confiscations, 
uh, you build onto it limited jurisdictional areas for the towns and villages. And then even within the 3%, everything I just spoke about was about the limitations within the 3%, the agricultural areas, the green areas, the state infrastructure projects. So it's a layer of different things that on its face, much of it is, um, doesn't sound discriminatory, but when you actually study the implications, the mechanisms of land confiscations, um, the way in which state land is allocated in practice, the way decisions are made around its allocation. You have even, we cite in the report, a government commission report that itself in essence said that the state lands are given um, basically on the basis of trying to preserve uh, a Jewish majority, that that was dictating decisions. Um, so I think that those are among the, the levers that are there. It's planning, it's land confiscations, it's uh, jurisdictional assignments. Um, so there, there are a lot of different mechanisms all at once. Now, of course, when we're speaking about land confiscations and, and expansions, what's hanging in the air right now uh, in Israeli politics in Penn Palestine is the issue of the Jordan Valley and whether or not we will see uh, yeah, that annexed over the next few months. And, and you know, um, the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in Israel this week talking about that to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. What would happen as a result if we do see this quite large area of land annexed by Israel, what would it mean to people living in those areas, people uh, living in the West Bank, but also generally to the issue of land in Palestine? Look, I think um, there, there are a lot of different ways that annexation could happen, some of which would um, change dynamics on the ground, potentially significantly, but there are actually many um, possibilities that would not change very much. That would actually largely be a symbolic move. I mean, the reality today is that Israel effectively controls not only um, all of the West Bank, uh, you know, but in effect all the land between the Jordan River uh, and the Mediterranean Sea. And, and they've been carrying out for decades now um, a policy um, that treats Palestinians um, unequally, that institutionally discriminates against them, um, you know, uh, uh, regardless of way, where they happen to live when it comes to most aspects of everyday life. So in some ways, annexation would make uh, formal, uh, would put into words what has been the kind of practice that has been governing, uh, you know, for, 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 for many, many years. And I think part of the point of the research we put out today is to say this narrative of, you know, Palestinian enclaves, you know, being surrounded in an archipelago of sorts amid, you know, a sea of Israeli settlements is not only a West Bank phenomenon. Uh, you definitely see it uh, in East Jerusalem. And as our research here shows, it also really describes um, the experience of Palestinian towns and villages inside Israel. And of course, in many ways, Gaza is that. It is a densely populated, uh, small area concentrating, you know, a large number of Palestinians surrounded by uh, Israeli communities. So I think uh, the point here is um, annexation may or may not change things that significantly. Um, likely in the short term, I would suspect it, not much would change um, on the ground. It could change over time, but it really should be a wake-up call uh, to the international community. We're here today you know, as a result of decades of impunity and the fact that um, authorities have not, um, you know, the international community has not made Israeli authorities um, pay a price you know, for um, their actions, the, um, you know, fiction of uh, a long morbid peace process or temporary occupation or Palestinian autonomy or even Israeli egalitarian democracy. These are all, you know, um, uh, words that have been used um, to describe a reality that's actually quite simple. 
about six and a half million Israeli Jews and six and a half, uh, uh, 6.6 million Israeli Jews, about 6.6 million uh, Palestinians living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean with Palestinians being treated unequally, certainly with varying degrees of intensity, but at the hands of the same government um, benefiting the same group, Jewish Israelis on the same sets of issues. And I think um, the reality here is uh, there is a need, and this should be a wake-up call to the international community about the need to reevaluate entirely its approach. We'll leave things here for today. Thank you to Kamil Ahmed, Ian Cobain, and Omar Sheker for joining me on this week's episode of Dispatch. You can find all our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Do subscribe and give us a cheeky rating. It goes a long way. Of course, you can keep up to date with all of our news coverage throughout the week by heading along to our website at MiddleEastEye.net. There you will find Kamal's interviews with the Bangladeshi immigrants in Libya and Ian's investigative series on British propaganda in Syria. Thanks to you for listening. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll see you next week.